Good morning. I want to personally welcome you to Easter 2020 online at Burning Bush Baptist Church. Thank you for joining, joining us. Have you ever been to Ripley's Believe It or Not? This morning, we're going to start off by playing a version of Ripley's Believe It or Not, but we're going to call it Believe It or Doubt It. And we want to find out what kind of trivia player you are and whether or not you can separate fact from fi fiction. And I have Joseph, Joseph up here this morning. And the way we're going to play this is I'm going to make a statement and then Joseph is going to tell us whether he believes it or doubts it. And when he gives his answer, I want you to be giving your answer at home. So we're going to find out again what kind of trivia player you are. There's not going to be time to Google this or look it up on the internet. You just have to know it. So here we go. Believe it or doubt it. Are you excited? I'm nervous. Are you nervous? Hopefully you, I you, do better than Kevin did earlier. You better be nervous. You know, I can feel the excitement coming through the screens. I mean, who thought we'd start off by playing a game this morning? So first statement, Joseph and everybody else. Barry Manilow personally wrote his hit song, I Write the Songs. Do you believe it or do you doubt it? Oh, that's a tough one. Barry Manilow, I don't really know him too well. I'm going to say I believe it. I knew you probably wouldn't know who Mary Manilow was. <laughs> probably a lot of people watching don't either. The answer is doubt it. He did not write, I write the songs. Second question. A coin thrown from the Empire State Building, throw a coin off the Empire State Building, can kill someone. Believe it or doubt it? You know, this has been a myth that has gone over years and years. And I have to say... I doubt it. You are correct. Yes, yes. And that's a great relief for all the people that participated in that experiment. Hey, I bet you a bunch of you at home just believe that. Third one. Walmart has a lower acceptance rate than Harvard. Believe it or doubt it? Believe it. Well, I can't personally speak to Walmart, but I did not get into Harvard. <laughs> Actually, I never applied. But... Believe it is the correct yes. answer. Yes. All right, number four. Cows have a regional accent when they moo. Believe it or doubt it? Doubt it. Believe it. Oh. It is true. Now, I, can, I, I can't verify this. I mean, I grew up in West Texas. All we have in West Texas are cows, cattle, and oil rigs. And I've been to Wyoming several times on vacations, and they have a lot of cattle out there. We have cattle just down the street here from the show, and I'm going to have to pay more attention the next time I hear yep. some cows moo. Yep. All right, so here's the last question. And you're going to have to kind of think, look into the future, and everybody that's online today watching on TV, you're going to have to kind of project into the future on this last one. I have been at Burning Bush Baptist Church for 21 years. When I came to Burning Bush, I didn't have any gray hair. Billy did not have any gray hair when he came to Burning Bush. So here's the question. Believe it or doubt it. Joseph has been here for six years. When he, if he stays and gets to 20 years, will Joseph have 
gray hair. Believe it or doubt it. You know, the real question is, will I have any hair? So I'm going to say doubt it. Well, I have done some research. You know, we have a crack research staff here, and they have put together what they think Joseph oh would look like in 15 years. This... It's on your screen there. Oh, I have hair. I can't believe it. I have hair. That's a lot of gray, Come too. over Joseph with gray hair. Well, thank you again for joining us online. I know that many of you watching today, you believe in the Easter story. And I also know that there's probably some of you who doubt it. And to you who doubt it, thank you for watching this morning and thank you for listening. You know, the first Easter night was like that. They were gathered with the resurrected Jesus, but there was one disciple who was missing. His name was Thomas. It wasn't that he didn't want to believe. It's just that this story seems so far-fetched. That somehow Jesus died on a cross and then he came back from the dead. To Thomas, that just didn't seem possible. I'm sure we can just hear him saying to the rest of the disciples, Come on, guys. Really? Maybe you were like him. It's nice to watch an online service and maybe in previous years you've attended an Easter service and a lot of times, you know, the music is pretty good and it's a great tradition and it's kind of an interesting story and, and maybe for you it keeps peace in the house when you attend an Easter service or watch an Easter service and, and maybe also go to a Christmas service. But you don't really take the Easter story seriously. You doubt it. You think, well, that just sounds like a fairy tale. It, it, it just sounds like maybe a, a Harry Potter story. So here's what I want to ask everybody to do this morning. I want to ask you to imagine that you are a member of a jury. And you are asked are tasked with the assignment of deciding one of the oldest cases in history. The people versus Jesus of Nazareth. The case is really simple. Jesus of Nazareth claims that he died and then he miraculously rose from the dead three days later. For centuries, the prosecution has based their case on three theories. The swoon theory. That theory states that Jesus didn't really die on a cross, but that when he was in such a state of shock that he swooned into a coma. And so then they took his body, thinking that he was dead, and they placed it in a dark, cool cave, laid him on a cold slab, and he snapped out of the coma. And somehow, even though he was exhausted from loss of blood, beaten to a pulp, whipped with a cat of nine tails, hung on a cross, somehow, in that state, he managed to push away a one-ton stone and then slip away unnoticed by Roman soldiers who would be given the death penalty for letting somebody into that tomb. 
And then he reappeared to his followers days later, claiming that he had risen from the dead when actually he had just come out of a coma. There's a second theory. It's called the kidnap theory. The prosecution claims that this theory claims that Jesus did die and his body was stolen. The explanation is is that his followers came in the middle of the night. Somehow they got past that Roman guard. Somehow they rolled away that 2,000 pound stone. And then unseen by the soldiers, they took his body and they hid it where it would never be found again. The kidnappers would then claim that because the tomb was empty, that he rose from the dead. And then there's a third theory that the prosecution sometimes uses. It's the hallucination theory. It's similar to the kidnap theory, except the disciples had hallucinations about seeing Jesus. So the body was kidnapped. And then the theory goes that the disciples thought they were seeing a resurrected Jesus, but really it was an apparition or a phantom or a figment or a hallucination of their imagination. So as a juror, you've heard the prosecution's case. Now the defense. We begin with the eyewitnesses. The defense attorneys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are eyewitnesses. Everything begins for the defense with the fact that Jesus did die. He didn't swoon. He wasn't kidnapped. They weren't hallucinating. In fact, over in the book of Matthew, Matthew puts it this way. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Mark says it this way, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Luke says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. And then John, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Four very clear statements that confirm the death of Jesus. Now, I know some of you who are skeptical would say, well, they were his followers. Of course they would say that Jesus was dead. So now the defense would like to call the Roman officer who was in charge of the death squad at the crucifixion. He says this, I was standing right in front of him. I saw the way that he breathed his last. Truly this man was the son of God. Notice the verb tense there. He was. It's past tense. He was the son of God. And now he's dead. Just matter of factly. We're talking about a Roman officer here. An intelligent man. Seasoned from years on the battlefield. He would know what death looked like. He would not have been the type of man that was given to rumors and fairy tales. 
He stood in front of Jesus and he said, he's dead. How about the other soldiers that were there? We can hear from them too. They were in charge of breaking the legs of the other two thieves that were hanging on each side of Jesus. The reason they did that was to hasten the death process. When they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs. It tells us in the book of John chapter 19, when they saw that he was already dead and they didn't break his legs. Let me ask you a question. Why break the legs of men who were already being tortured? Let me describe a little bit of how the crucifixion process happens. They put a person on a cross. And then they drive spikes through their feet. And they drive spikes through their arms. And their arms are kind of hooked around the cross. And in order to breathe, you have to push yourself up with those spikes in your feet. And every gasp of air means excruciating pain. If you don't push up with your legs, you suffocate. It was a terrible, painful way to die. Every breath, you're pushing up. So you might ask, well, why did they break their legs? Why didn't they just leave them there and let their sentence be carried out? Remember, it's Friday. The Passover starts at sundown. The high priest, the religious officials. It's one of the most holy days of the year for the Jews. They don't want these guys hanging around when the holiest of days started. So they asked the soldiers to break their legs so as to quicken the death. And we're told that when the soldiers came to Jesus that his, he was already dead. But just to make sure, they took a spear and they pierced his side. And scriptures tell us that blood and water came out. One medical authority comments on this. And he says, writing, that the separation of the dark red corpuscles from the thick whitish serum of blood, called water here, indicates death. It proved there was no way that he could have been in a coma. Still not convinced? We'd like to call up the burial party. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. We're told in the book of John chapter 19 that these two men took the body of Jesus and they prepared him for burial. Can I give you a brief description of the, the burial preparation? So they would have 8 to 12 inch cloths and they would take those straps of cloth, those strips of cloth, and they would have wrapped him from his ankles to his shoulders with those strips of cloth that would have had this gummy substance on it made from burial spices. When it hardened, it would be much like those pictures that you've seen of Egyptian mummies. He would kind of, the body would be encased in them. A cloth would be placed over the face and then underneath the jaw it would be tied to keep the mouth from dropping opened. And you and I know if there was any hint 
in a million years that Jesus was still alive, Joseph and Nicodemus would have immediately stopped their preparations. And now we come to the foundation of the defense's case. It is the massive stone that was placed at the entrance to the tomb. It's where the Easter story begins. John chapter 20 verse 1. Early on the first day of the week while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. We know that from earlier verses that this tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. Most likely it was a family tomb. And to fully understand the significance of this verse, you need to understand that surrounding Jerusalem, that area, is kind of made out of limestone. And it's just pockmarked with caves all over the place. Limestone is also fairly easy to dig into. So the body of Jesus was taken to one of those caves or, or tombs, and then Jesus would have been laid on a slab in the cave. Here is a picture of such a cave. I want you to notice the circular stone there. It weighed at least a ton. Notice that it's kind of set there on an inclined groove. And you'll notice kind of in the bottom corner there on your screen, in the bottom corner of that picture there, that there is a wedge that holds that stone into place. So somebody would be placed inside that tomb. Then they would remove the wedge and then they would let gravity do its work and that stone would roll in to place. A Roman guard was an additional layer of protection that was added to the tomb of Jesus. And he was also buried with a Roman seal. So somehow they placed a seal between the door and the cave itself so they would know if that seal was broken. Much like you might buy medicine or something and you would know if the seal was broken that somebody had tampered with it. And that's how they would know if the cave was tampered with. To make sure that no one would steal his body. That one ton displaced stone is strong evidence that the resurrection took place. Now I don't know if God moved that stone supernaturally. Or if Jesus was just physically changed in his molecular structure. Which just gave him the ability to slip out of the grave and his wrappings. And we know in other post-resurrection stories. It seems that his body was altered. And that he could walk through things that previously would have been earthly barriers. However it happened, before Mary arrived, the stone was moved. And so John kind of continues his defense describing Mary's story. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. I love the way that John puts himself in third person here, the other disciple. So that's John, the one Jesus loved and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, there he goes, third person again, outran Peter, so apparently John is faster and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in the, in, at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. 
Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there. It continues in verse 7. As well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in his place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, we're talking about John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So to Mary, we add two more witnesses, Peter and John. Now, skeptics will sometimes point out in verse 2 that Mary says, They have taken the Lord. So we have to ask, what are the possible reasons that the tomb could be empty? First is this. Jesus was alive, scrambled out of the tomb under his own power. Now wait, think about this for a second. That stone weighed 2,000 pounds. What healthy man is going to move a 2,000-pound stone by himself? Let a mind a man who had been in a coma, who had been beaten, tortured, and hung on a cross. That is physically impossible. The second explanation is someone took the body and hid it. Who would do that? His enemies? I mean, the Roman guard certainly wasn't going to do that. Death penalty if that body gets taken. They're not going to do it. They didn't want to be responsible for that body being gone. The religious leaders, that was their worst nightmare. They're not taking that body. That's the very thing they didn't want to happen is that body to disappear and then people be claiming that Jesus rose from the grave. And besides that, if they had the body, don't you think they would have produced it, the religious leaders, When the disciples started walking around and saying, hey, Jesus rose from the grave. If they'd had the body, wouldn't they have said, no, he didn't. Here's his body. Patrick Fairbairn speaks to that. He says, the silence of the Jews was as significant as the speech of the Christians. They didn't have his body. Thirdly, his friends wouldn't have taken the body. How did they get by the Roman guard? They certainly didn't fight them. They certainly didn't sneak them out. And think about this. People will die for what they believe in, but people aren't going to die for lies. And almost every one of the disciples was martyred for their belief in a resurrected Jesus Christ. They're not doing that for a lie. That only leaves the fourth explanation. He rose from the grave just like the Bible says. There are three words that I think you'll find interesting here in John's account. They are all translated the word saw in English. But they are three different words in the original Greek text. Each of them has a different nuance. The first one is the word saw in verse 5. It was John. He saw the linen wrappings. It's from the Greek word blepo, and it indicates a casual glance. You may remember in verse 5 when we read it a while ago that John got there first because he was faster. And he just kind of glances into the tomb because we're told that Peter actually goes in first. So John just kind of takes a casual look at first. 
In verse 6, the word saw, some, some translations, it's beheld. Peter beheld, or Peter saw, the linen wrappings. Peter's known for his spontaneous manner. You know, he's just kind of like, hey, let me in there. Let me see what's going on. Come on. And he just kind of jumps in there and he looks. And the Greek word is theoreo. And if you pause for a moment, you might think about, well, that sounds like the English word theorize. And that's exactly where we get that word from. So Peter stood and he gazed at the clothes carefully. He's trying to figure out what happened. How, how did this happen? And we kind of gather from the original Greek text that these hardened mummy-like wrappings were still intact. You know, we've all seen cocoons after a butterfly has emerged. They are just hollow, empty structures. In this case, the body was gone, so it's, it's almost like a, a hollow cocoon. You know, my wife, when my kids were younger, she used to make these very elaborate pinatas for our kids on their birthday and special occasions and stuff. And she would make them with paper mache. And if you've ever made those, you use balloons and different things like that. And then eventually you pop the balloons and the structure stays in place even though the balloons are gone and nothing's really holding it in place. It's just an empty structure. That's the case here. The, the wrappings are still intact. The cloth is still there, but there's nothing supporting it. And to Peter, this was puzzling, and he was trying to figure out what happened. The third saw is in verse 8. So John looks again this time, and he actually steps into the tomb. The first time, he just kind of took a glance. Now he comes in, and the Greek word is oida. And it means to form a mental perception to actually understand what takes place. So John kind of pushes Peter aside and he draws, dawns on him what has happened. Jesus has risen. And this is confirmed because it says, John believed. The abandoned grave clothes are further proof of the resurrection. Now comes the clincher. We have heard from the eyewitnesses to the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the discover of the empty tomb, but there's even more. Those that actually saw Jesus alive after he had been raised from the dead. Did you know that over 500 folks saw Jesus before he went to heaven? Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. That's a lot of people, 500. That's a lot of witnesses. And you might say, well, of course the Bible's going to say that. But besides the biblical account, there is also the historical accounts 
given by historians that were living in the first century when this took place. There are historians that verify that yes, there was this Jesus guy. And these guys, remember, they don't have a dog in this hunt. They said there was this man named Jesus who rose from the grave. The defense rests its case. Not only because of the biblical accounts, not only because of the historical accounts, but also because of the countless number of men and women and children whose lives have been changed throughout history. The empty tomb has transformed countless numbers of lives. Not by trials, not by scientific experiments and studies, but by the simple faith of an honest heart. Josh McDowell, the well-known apologist, says it's evidence that demands a verdict. And it's a verdict of the heart. I asked you when we started this morning to be the jury. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is the most important verdict you will ever give because your decision will be all about your eternal destiny and it will determine your eternal destiny. What is your verdict? Believe it or doubt it? Your verdict, please. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace and we thank you for the Easter story. And Father, I know there are lots of people watching this morning and lots of them believe in the resurrection story. And Father, I just pray that on this special Sunday that it has special meaning to us. But I also pray for those this morning that maybe they doubt it, maybe they just can't quite make sense of it all. And Father, I just pray that you'll speak to them. And Father, I just pray that that they'll dig into this a little more. Maybe they'll send us an email. They'll drop by sometime. They'll contact some people that they know, family and friends. And they just won't let this kind of run by them today. But, Father, they'll ask some questions and explore it further. God, thank you so much for loving us. Loving us enough to send your son to die on that cross. And then we're so grateful that he rose from the dead three days later so that we could have the gift of eternal life. Thank you for grace and mercy and power. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.